broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. And the villain is usually in such a many-faceted character. He's a very interesting person to study. Uh, there are all kinds of villains. There's the villain that uh, is a villain in spite of himself. There is the villain who is a born villain. I mean, the kind who sort of were born that way. And then the villains that are the most interesting ones, I think, who are uh, turned to evil by the by fate, really, by the wounds, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That was from a 1974 interview with the mighty Vincent Price, a classic horror movie actor discussing the world's fascination with the motion picture villain. Tonight's guest is a celebrated movie monster from the 1980s slasher film era. He's also a true historian of cinema and much like Vincent Price, a lifelong admirer of the very genre that sparked his celebrity. We'll hear his story after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. You are listening to the Off to the Witch podcast, where we explore that bizarre borderline between fiction and reality and all subjects arcane. Journey over to my YouTube channel and subscribe now at youtube.com slash at off to the witch for a variety of extras and special features, including the off to the witch mini docs with further insights on many of the latest episodes, as well as previews and behind the scenes of my forthcoming investigative series off to the witch presents, as well as the anniversary edition of my motion picture documentary Montauk Chronicles and follow us on social media. All links are available at linktree.com slash garitano7, G-A-R-E-T-A-N-O-7. And stay tuned for more Off to the Witch. Many strange things happen around here. There is a tale. It was a night like tonight. Many years ago. There is a legend. If you say his name above a whisper, he'll get you. There is a warning. On certain nights, when the moon is full, he's out there stalking in the woods. There is a madman. His name is Mars. Mad man. Mars. Mars! Madman Mars! Here we are! Come and get us, madman! Don't you realize you're fooling with things beyond your control?
Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest, Paul W. Ellers, was entirely captivated by monster movies at a very young age. The creature features of the 1950s and 60s, universal monsters, the villains of Hammer films, William Castle's theatrical audience shocks and gimmicks, coupled with an obsession for October 31st, all forged Paul's destiny. And as fate would have it, in autumn of 1980, he was hired to play the monster in the classic horror movie, Madman. Tonight, he takes us on a journey of spooky cinema nostalgia and what it was like to make the movie. So here's my interview with Paul W. Ellers. I was born in 1949 in Jamaica, Queens, and I was born on November 2nd, which some of you may know is uh, Dia de los Muertos in Mexico, which is Day of the Dead, which I think is so appropriate. And uh, I actually embrace that. I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, my mother tells me I was making a lot of movement and carrying on in the womb on Halloween, which now I, I totally understand why I did that. I mean, I would have loved to have been born on Halloween, on Samhain. But I see now that would have been a problem, being that I really love entertaining all the children in our neighborhood on Halloween. And I often say to my wife, Eddie, you know, I'm doing this now 29 years here at the house. And I often say, I have to be here. I mean, I won't take a gig, I won't do a convention, anything that falls on Halloween, because I often say if I was not here, uh, the locals would torch my house. <laughs> I, I would come home to this burned out cinder of what was once my home. You know, they, they need to see me here. And uh, I actually need to see them um, for me. Was Halloween always something for you? Was it always something powerful for you as far back as you can remember? It was always. And, you know, I once got in trouble. My mother, who was very creative and who loved horror movies, I, I would watch all the horror films, everything that was on TV as a kid with her. My father worked in... Uh, and he worked for Brinks back in the day for many years, like 35 years. And he was a driver and they would have him get up. He would have to go into Manhattan from Queens and sometimes get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, his sleep was very important to him. So he did not appreciate me and mom watching horror movies and TV shows late at night. In fact, so funny that I swear to God, we had the TV volume so low in the 50s that I could hardly hear it. But dad would come stomping into the room and say, I have to get up in the morning. So, you know, that would be a problem. But mom one time, you know, she talked about All Hallows Eve. And, you know, it's your mother. You listen to your mother. And, you know, I had my costume at the time. I think it was like a Roman centurion or something. And, you know, she said you should go out on the 30th, Paul, because she said that's All Hallows' Eve. I said, oh, wait a minute now. 
Now, Halloween's the 31st. So like, like a good, obedient child, I go out with the cape and the costume and the plastic armor and some shopping bags and start knocking on doors. And, you know, my uh, neighbors were not really understanding what the hell I was doing. Well, isn't it appropriate that you were a Roman soldier and it was all Hallow's Eve, which was obviously the, the, the Romans stole it from the, the Celts, no? They did steal from the Celts and so many, so many of the holidays we have. You know, I mean, it's uh, even the, even the spring, the spring festivals that pagans uh, performed uh, at the time of, you know, uh, springtime, which was was rebirth and growth and everywhere and every agricultural society and civilization honored springtime. You know, after the months and months of darkness drawing back the sun, uh, the life-giving energy of the sun, the power of the sun. It made great sense that that to them was something they worshipped and they would call back. I think many of the Samhain ceremonies, they would uh, light bonfires on hilltops as well as uh, Beltane or Beltena, as they call it in Ireland. Uh, calling back the sun, calling back the power of the sun for growth and abundance. So it was a dark time, and uh, it made sense. I mean, the people then, they believed in nature, and it's very interesting. Um, we talk about God and spirit and so forth, but but nature is something that's tactile. You can see it. You can see the growth of plants. You can see flowers emerging, animals emerging. You know, there's something very real about the miracle of the seasons. And we see that. We see that. And I also understand why they feared bad storms, things like that. I mean, these these were very real things that affected their lives, you know? Sure. And, and darkness was about to set in for many months. For many and months, and yeah, the, and people- now the basic traditions of the night have pretty much carried on since the Neolithic era, right? I mean, like they, there was that idea back then that the veil between the living and the dead, essentially, or the living and the uh, the other world, because it wasn't just deceased people that they those traditions, even the costume. And I'm, you know, and this carries throughout your life. A lot of these themes are so important to you, and it's probably what attracted you, one way or another, to play that character because you were already inundated with film history in terms of who was who as movie monsters, and then you had you had this childhood that preceded that, where you obsessed over Halloween, you loved it, and as you were coming into adulthood. This is your culture. This this is your world. It's 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 much more than a, a childhood game. And- oh, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I think so many of us, and I know it means a great deal to you and so many are in the United States and uh, around the world sometimes too. They all have their own version of a day of the dead or honoring the dead, but for us being born in 1949 
okay? And coming up through the 50s, I had the honor of being within two blocks, walking blocks, of the old Archeo Keys Theater in Richmond Hill. And right next to that, by the way, was Jan's. That was a very famous New York ice cream parlor that went back to uh, the 1800s, late 1800s when he opened it. So that's probably why I put on weight because Jan's was right there. But the Archeo Keys, which used to be a vaudevillian theater, um, became first run for all the 1950s classic horror films that so many of us who are either involved in special effects or makeup or writing uh, any fantasy stories or horror stories, these things influenced us so heavily. And back then, it was reasonably safe for a child to go out to go out on their own and to to walk around without fear that something would attack them or somebody perverted would attack them, you know. And my mom knew that I was fairly careful, and I was a pretty big kid, so I guess that that uh, you know frightened off any potential attackers. But we used to go to the Archeo Keeps, and every Saturday at 11 a.m. All the kids in our area would file into the Archeo Keats and get popcorn or root beer barrels or whatever candy we were eating. Good and plenty, you know. If, if anybody remembers emptying out a box of good and plenty, if you can get it into your mouth and blow into it, it makes this terrible buzzing noise. <laughs> I do which, remember. Yeah, which will get people to start to throw popcorn at you. You know, and thank God everybody wasn't drinking beer in bottles because we would have all been horribly scarred from people tossing bottles. But we go in the theater and we would see all these films first time. And so many of us remember when Hammer Films started and we saw Curse of Frankenstein. My God, and Horror of Dracula in color with blood and Christopher Lee and the glorious Peter Cushing and all the characters back then, all the Hammer movies, man. Oh my God, Curse of the Werewolf, you know, and Oliver Reed and Phantom of the Opera. I used to, when I saw Phantom of the Opera, and I used to actually, uh, I used to go to a Lutheran church when I was a kid, and I used to be an acolyte. I would actually... I would actually light the candles on the altar. And later on, I would carry the cross. But what I would do when I had times that we were either there late at night or some activity was going on, like some community thing downstairs, I would sneak upstairs, turn on the organ, and start playing the organ. Now, I, was not a mus I wasn't a musician. But I had a good sense of how things kind of sounded and would give a mood. And I would start playing the organ in this empty, dark church, thinking that I was like Herbert Lom <laughs> in the Hammer Phantom of the Opera. And like when he sings, Christine, when you sing, you will sing only for me. 
And I just would imagine that and I would do a whole to do. It was so cool. But, you know, we had back in the day, I wish I had the presence of mind because today I love um, the key art done for posters, one sheets and inserts and lobby cards. And so many of us back then collected lobby cards and posters. And my, my dear friend, Larry Ferreira, who passed recently, Larry was working in a theater out in Belmore, and he used to get a hold of all these great one sheets. Of course, they were all folded then. You know, today you can get rolled posters, okay? They're still really not supposed to give them to you. But if you look on the packaging, it would say, must return to whatever theater thing. So, you know, you weren't supposed to actually be in possession of these posters, but all of them. I remember, you know, what would draw me into the theater would be the, the art, the art up for the film. And it's the first thing you would see outside the theater would be these amazing pieces of art uh, for Hammer films and prior that for all Universal and AIP and all the Vincent Price movies. And we would look at this amazing art, the oblong box. And, uh, you know, just thinking about Vincent Price, this is, some people know this. Um, just to jump to Mad Men for a minute. Um, we had uh, Fred Newman uh, playing Max in our film. And he was only there for a few days. But I found out, becoming friends with Joey, the director, uh, later on that, they originally were going to try to get Vincent Price to play Max. Now, oh wow, yeah, that would have been Vincent, something, huh? And it was going to cost them twelve thousand dollars. And having the great vision that they had, they decided not to hire Vincent Price. <laughs> it would have been worth the twelve thousand. Oh, and more, okay. And I would have met him, which would have been he would have had to get the jewel off of his clothing all all the time, you know? And but they could have had been surprised. You know, the thing is, Madman was so well done that with price in it would have probably multiplied its success at that time twentyfold. Yes, it would have. It would have. And you know, I I wish they hadn't told me that because I would take my salary. My salary, by the way, was three hundred and fifty dollars a week. Oh wow! Yeah, that's what I got. We, you know, uh, Gary Sales, the producer and and co writer of of the film, and who Gary did many of the songs. You know, he kind of tried to finagle and pay people where he could, and you know, he'd say, "Let me help you with your bills. Let me do that. Let me do this." And the interesting thing with Mad Men is we were not a SAG film. And uh, I, at that time, was not, had not done any other really acting gigs. And I was not a SAG member. So I could use my actual name. And I, by the way, I, I pushed them on the poster. Please put, and introducing, <laughs> Paul Ellers as Madman Mars. Because they can, couldn't really pay me very much, you know. I don't think anybody made very much money. I mean, the entire budget on the film initially, I think, was $350,000. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and you we, know, yeah. And back then, what 
I, I do want to backtrack a little bit, but um, it's a lot of people don't realize all of these horror films that one way or another, eventually in their time, um, really either made a lot of money or became legendary, iconic. You know, they've been merchandised, they've been sequelized so many times. And it, it took a while for Madman to reach a leveled status with the others um, over some time. And it had nothing to do with how good or bad the movie is. It's, it's a good movie. Um, but there was never a sequel. And, but, it's, but it's now on the level with those other films, no matter how many sequels they have or how many years have passed in between. And it's generations of people now that are truly appreciating it. Now, I want—I just want to go back for a second because you had, you—you you had an absolute adoration and love for motion pictures, for filmmaking, for art, um, and for monster movies, and that was—it it was your life. So, so going forward, so you—so the natural decision that you had was that you wanted to pursue. Movie making, is that correct? Yes, that was my thought. And what I did with my friend that I met when I think we were 12 or 13, my good friend Ken Idell, who is still with us, thank God, that I've known forever. Um, we love film. He loved film. Back in the day, it was kind of a split between, you know, horror movies and fantasy animations by Ray Harryhausen, right? Which we all, all of us just just devoured. We loved Ray's stop motion animation. My God, we all loved that so much. And, you know, but Ken and I, we were at a, a time period in our lives, uh, early teens, when there was a shitload of spy shows on TV. And, you know, I spy and and the man from Uncle and on and Honey West and on. So we said, we can do this. Let's let's make a Super 8 film. You know, let's go get a camera. So I remember we went shopping. We got our allowance together and we bought a little Yashica camera. And I said, let's go do this. And because of my sense in art, uh, I think part of this had to do with one of my uncles was uh, in advertising and he would give me art supplies when I was a little kid, single digits, you know, and he would have these TV pads that they use uh, to, I guess in a way they were storyboards for commercials. And you had a little TV, a white area on the pad. And it was usually four TV screens in white, the rest of it gray, and an area underneath where you could put notes, like Alka-Seltzer. And you do a rough sketch of speedy Alka-Seltzer about to throw the tablet into water, and you write underneath, speedy comes in from the left of the frame, walks up a ladder, and drops the tablet in. So he had these great pads, and he gave them to me. And I would... I had, you know, headphones or I, by the way, a huge part of my inspiration. And I know it's true for you too, Christopher, are soundtracks. I love 
soundtracks. I have, oh God, I have since is it's forever. I always noticed the music in films. And I think my first score that I actually bought on, on vinyl back then was Ben-Hur, Miklos Roshan, right? So I would put my headphones on, lie on the rug in the living room with these pads in front of me, listening to this triumphant, you know, Ben-Hur music and the chariot race, and, and I would draw. And I would start to draw what would ultimately look like, you know, graphic novels or illustrated comic books. And I would come up with characters. I would make up characters and I would lay out the thing. The stories like a storyboard. I would give a guy a name, you know, a superhero name, and he would have that. And, and then it, it, my early stuff was really pretty pathetic looking when I would draw Hercules. I mean, you know, he had muscles where he shouldn't have, but he was always fighting monsters. He was fighting monsters. And, you know, I would do, and this would keep me busy. I, you know, rainy days, days, at, you know, in the winter, uh, I would just lie on the floor listening to film scores and just create these wonderful adventures uh, on paper. And uh, I continued to collect soundtracks from from 1958, I still do. Okay. Just thinking metaphysically for a second, you know, and, and, and attracting or manifesting situations in your life. It's, you had such a strong magnetic uh, thought process and love for all of the above, everything we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then you know, a few short years into, and how old were you? You were closer to 30 when you played Mad Yeah, Man? I was 30 when I did Mad Men. Okay. Yes. Then eventually, you you were drawn into exactly what you loved in all aspects. You know, it was it, all at once. It was filmmaking. It was monster movies. It was horror films. You ended up playing the iconic role. You could have played another role in the movie if they said, oh, we want you to play this guy for a few minutes. No, you ended up playing the madman. Do you feel like in a way that's manifesting? Do you think it was it came to you as part of destiny, in other words? I think it was because, you know, it was, I knew uh, Joe Giannone. I had met him through a friend of mine, Jim Grillo, uh, a really dear friend of mine, fine artist, uh, lives in upstate New York. And uh, his wife, his ex-wife back in the day, uh, went to Richmond High School with Joey and with Gary Sales. And he told me that Joey was planning on doing his first film, his first feature, independent feature. And I remember Gary and Joey told me they had an option. They could have done, they could have done porno, they could have done action adventure, or they could have done horror. And it's a diverse group. Yeah, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, so I, you know, Indiana Mars wouldn't have really worked. You know, that's kind of weird. You know, it, that wouldn't have worked. But, but they decided on horror. So he would uh, go over to visit my friend Jim and his wife, and they invited me out a few times. And I realized later what Joey was doing was really picking my brain for what was scary, what worked in these films. 
And I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, they, they, we would talk, you know, till dawn about horror films and about what works and what's frightening, uh, especially talking about the unseen things that are implied in a film. Uh, for me, I always say this every time, but for me, uh, 1961's The Haunting, okay, was terrifying, terrifying film. Mostly with things that you do not see. So Can I think you, for the for some people in the audience, you know, they've seen modern incarnations of that. Yeah, um, they're not the same. Can you describe what some of the greatest or one great moment in Wise's film and why it affected you the way it did? Oh my God! Okay, first of all, it's black and white, which which immediately it could have been color, but they chose not to. It had really good actors. Okay, and. Uh, these a psychic, uh, two women, one who had psychic ability, the other who had things occur in her childhood, strange uh, metaphysical events would happen when she was a little girl. Uh, Dr. Markway was putting together a group of sensitives to go into this hill house, okay, this hill house built by uh, an eccentric millionaire. It was built in, in a very distant, uh, isolated part of New England. And they were invited to spend several nights there for him to, to just make notes and do a study on what was happening in the house. And at first, there wasn't a lot going on. But in time, um, Hugh Crane, his name was, and he had passed and he had a daughter that was, in a sense, mentally abused by her father, who was a very strict, very religious man. And she wound up, when her father passed, she wound up living in that house until her death. And I remember that Robert Wise does this wonderful shot during the narration where you see her as a little girl in the bed and it slowly dissolves into an old woman's face. A great piece of makeup there, great effect. And that right away was frightening. But there were things going on in this house. This was a great, I found out since then that the house was actually a house in England. It makes sense. And one of the most frightening scenes, I think, for everyone when I, when I talk about it is um, they're alone. The two psychic women are alone in a bedroom and there's pounding that they start to hear in the hallway. And it's this rhythmic boom, boom, boom. And it gets louder and louder. And it comes to the door of their bedroom and starts pounding on the door. And the girls are terrified, of course. And the sound was so dramatic and the acting was so good on, on, on the part of the actors, Julie Harris and Claire Bloom, if I remember right. And they're terrified and they're screaming and Dr. Markway and, uh, and his, his young assistant, they come down the hall and they didn't hear anything. Something had, uh, acted as a decoy and made them leave the house so the girls would be alone. 
And that same pounding happens later. All of them are together in a room. And there's this huge carved oak door. And the pounding starts. And it gets closer and closer. And Robert Wise had the camera on the doorknob, very ornate doorknob. And it starts turning. And it's turning. Something on the other side of the door is working the doorknob to try and open the door. And um, they're all watching, eyes wide open. The door starts to belly into the room. Some force is pushing on the door from the other side, and it's starting to distort and to come into the room. You think it's just going to explode and open up, and this door just you know, just kind of creaks and pushes in it, you know, straining, and then it goes away. That scene, everyone I talk to, I think they remember that scene very well, very well. And there's a scene when she's in the bed and she hears these weird voices coming. I mean, Robert Weiss did such an amazing job in this film, but most people who've seen the original Haunting love the film. But again, it's implied terror. We never truly see what's there. We, our minds, you know, if I guess everyone, their imagination could imagine the most incredibly hideous thing on the other side of the door. You know, we can relate on so many levels, but the one thing that I don't know what this is like is to play a movie monster and, and one that's worth playing. I mean, there are, Tons of different level budget movies made today uh, and a lot of them forgettable. And it's just, you know, it's a lack of uh, understanding of the craft. But this movie was well made. And this was at a time. Can you, all right, can you take me back to this time period of movies? And it was a place where horror films, even though it, it required a significant amount of money to make regardless, they could get a distribution in drive-in theaters and and, and movie theaters. Can you talk yes. about that era? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was almost the thing to go do. And as you know, Joe Bob Briggs, I think, put Mad Men up there as number six or seven of the top ten all-time best drive-in horror films, which is really cool. And, you know, uh, it was a genre that so many of us were just dedicated to between reading Famous Monsters magazine and Castle of Frankenstein and collecting the Aurora horror models. I mean, we all did that. You know, I think Greg Nicotero, I know Greg and, 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 and David Scout, all these people, we all collected this stuff. And because we were that strongly influenced by it. And when I did Mad Men, um, I would go have me, we had a, an office on Broadway in the city and we would go in there and I would meet with Joey and Gary and, and uh, I met some of the other actors then. And, uh, I, you know, he asked me to do the one sheet and I was going to do it fairly cheaply, you know, so... He so, asked you to, to illustrate it. To illustrate the one sheet, which um, was never actually really used because 
Jensen faulted the distributors, didn't feel it was horrific enough, I guess. Although what Joey asked for was something like sophisticated, like a like a 19th century Grimm's fairy tale German book, you know, with silhouettes and gnarled trees and all that. I also did the logo, the Mad Men logo. Uh, I created that too. So I did an image and um, it's out there. I, I actually, I got to tell you, I actually made a, 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 a 27 by 40 uh, reproduction of it that, I, for the first time, that I had taken to Chill Theater in uh, in April, and I was selling copies of that. I still, I still have them for sale. Uh, but uh, it was great because I could put out my actual art. It never made it into the poster. It's it's the silhouette. And that's a collectible now because that was an official hire on the part of the producers. They wanted you to do the poster art. And again, you're someone, I'm trying to get the, you know, some of the audience already is in this perspective, but those of who who haven't uh, shared our sentiments over the years, maybe slightly they have. To 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 understand what it's like to grow up obsessed with these movies and how they're made too, the monsters, the actors, um, the directors, uh, the entire spectrum of the genre, and of course fantasy and westerns and all that stuff. But movies in general, and then at, at its center are, are these creature features and monster movies that you just adore. And then to now not only be hired to play the lead monster in this motion picture, but also because you're, you were also obsessed with the poster art and everything that surrounded it. Is, uh, and you're an artist, so they hired you to, to draw the poster. It must have been a quite intoxicating moment, no? Oh, God, yes. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was thrilled. And, you know, I, uh, I, did, I executed the piece. Whoop, never say executed when you talk about horror films. Uh, <laughs> I did the piece, and Gary and Joey, they loved it, you know? And um, they then were, they were uh, auditioning people to play the character of Mars. And they went through, I don't know how many people. They, you know, they were telling me they had a guy that was almost seven feet. They tried him. They, they tried all these things and they, nothing was quite right. And I was at a meeting with them. And they knew, by the way, that back in those days, I've thinned down quite a bit from my, my madman days. And I was very much into martial arts, into weaponry, uh, swords, axes, everything involved. Uh, what I did, perhaps foolishly, as a young man, is karate, karate, and kung fu. I, I always thought, you know, breaking things was important. And of course, unless you're fighting an adversary that's wearing armor, uh, really, you don't need to do that. So, but I would break things. I would do makewara board. I would do all these things. And uh, it turns out for the character, they were looking for someone who could move well with a weapon, who could do a lot of their own stunts. Okay. And I was pretty strong then, you know, and uh, they knew I did all these things and they had exhausted seeing all these people. And whether it's not, it was the actual thing that was said to me, but I like to think that they turned to each other, looked at me and said, Paul, 
what are you doing for the next two months? And I, I was just, whoa, really? I'm, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And part of- I have to ask, were you hoping that they would consider you throughout this process? Because you knew they were making this film. And I'm sure- I was kind of envisioning it. I was trying to imagine that, you know? But I think, I, you know, I thought maybe they wanted somebody much taller and whatever, whatever. So, but, you know, but I got it. And um, prepping for it was very interesting, too, because we had, we had uh, seen a makeup gentleman named Tony Alonzo, who I think now has gone on to do a lot of different work. And uh, they wanted to uh, create a look for Mars for his face. And I remember I did some sketches. Uh, which Joey looked at, and we went to uh, Tony, and he cast my head. And interestingly, so I'm 30, and I had a beard since I was like 18, you know. I only knew myself with this beard. So, you know, he said to me, I'm going to have to shave your face to be able to make this plaster cast. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, so I wanted the role. So, Shaved the beard off, and I was in shock, by the way. I had not seen myself in without a beard in a very long time. So, you know, they, they did that. They cast my head, and then we were invited back to look at, um, as he was doing the sculpting for the face and the head, and, and uh, of course, you know, Mars is missing the one eye because he gets hit in the face by an axe by the townspeople and you know he's that he's he's got the scars he's got uh, all to do and you know i remember going to look at the latex mask and i think i've mentioned this but you know today of course that they for safety they have any number of special effects appliances and masks if something happens to the mask well we had one mask one mask and thank god this thing did not get destroyed and by the way oh wow they so there were no backups no backup mask. mask was it cast in foam latex or, or yeah it was, it, it, it was like a latex casting um okay. it, it was glued on to parts of my face i had uh false teeth that were put in uh a lot of you know, uh, the white beard, the white hair. And I tell people this today because life imitating art seems to have happened to me. Now that I'm 73, <laughs> when I did <laughs> Mad Man, I had brown hair and it was dark, you know, and my beard was dark, right? Now I have white hair, long white hair and a white beard. I am turning into Mad Man. Mars. I just want everyone to know that. <laughs> okay, this is this is interesting. That's a horror story in itself. I mean, oh, but yeah. it's okay. So we talk about manifesting. Yes. You know, you had it was so powerful. A lot of people that don't understand that that ha that haven't gone through this and haven't had this obsession and this love for this type of cinema their whole lives. They just don't get it. Mm -hmm. They don't know what drives people who have that obsession, and so. Do you, I know you believe this, but maybe you could talk about it a little bit. Um, the power of manifesting things, you know, in one aspect, 
I truly feel that you manifested the opportunity to play this movie monster. And it could have been anything. It could have been something that was thrown away and forgotten. But this is not the case. This is a very celebrated film. And the character is more celebrated than ever now. And, um, and then eventually, you know, do you feel like you've kind of merged? It's your alter ego. So you've kind of merged with the character and you've, you know, you don't look like madman, but you, you kind of have some <laughs> of the characteristics. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, I do. It's much like, more handsome version of madman. Why? Thank you. Yes. Why? They, well, yeah, you know, and I do because you and I have talked about uh, the power of manifestation and of remote viewing and every, I think there is something very, very real about positive thinking, imagining, about visualizing something happening that I think the universe listens. And many times, be careful what you wish for, because you're going to get it. And all the constant thinking, drawing monsters, sculpting monsters, you know, doing, I mean, my God, I geez. I remember I used to, my aunt's house, when we would play with soldiers, I always had a terrifying fear of quicksand as a kid. And I think it's from watching things like uh, From Hell It Came or with that tree mine. Anything that had quicksand freaked me out. And I remember I put a lot of water in the base of my aunt's plants, and then we would play with soldiers, and I would try to cross the mud and go, ah, I started <laughs> I would push the soldier under the mud, blip, 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 you know, and that was part of doing it. But we, I mean, you did this too. I mean, we, you know, we, we made makeup from what we had available. I found early on that if you took pink toilet paper and you wet it down, you can apply it to your skin and it looks like flesh. And you can then tear at it and put ketchup in there or later on stage flood, you can do a whole face with this. And you can, you can sculpt, you can do it out of clay, you can do you know, and you know that you've done all this stuff, you know, and... Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure it came out, I don't know how old you are when it came out. I had a reprint, but Dick Smith put out a, a how-to yes. monster makeup book in that same out-of-the-box or household items to turn yourself into a monster. Did you have that book as a kid? I did, I did, I did, I did. And... You know, we would try to read up on everything we could. And, you know, it's funny. The quality of the Halloween costumes then, when I was really small, basically it was in a box. It was in a box, with like a leopard costume and a cheap mask, you know? Sure. And that's what you, you'd put on. Later on, I think all of us got a little more imaginative and we would try to add to that. We would we would add things to it. We would embellish it. We would try to do our own frightening version of something, which, you know, it, it just never leaves. And when I was doing Mad Men, <clears throat> again, my late dear friend, Larry, early on, we loved John Carpenter's work, as you do, we all do, right? And he had made me a cassette of Carpenter's score to the 1978 Halloween, which I still think is a freaking masterpiece a masterpiece and let me just say on that for a minute i had an argument with a young man who liked rob zombies uh, over the original halloween 
And we had this big fight because I said, I said, don't you understand that the frightening part about Michael Myers and whatever he was possessed by was that he was an average build guy. He was a regular shaped human being. He wasn't exceedingly powerful. He wasn't like a bodybuilder. And I think uh, the character of Michael Myers, to me, what made it terrifying was here's a, what looks like a regular man, has superhuman powers, has the ability to be shot at, to be slammed and bammed and knocked around and pick up a man and plunge him with a carving knife into a, war, a door. And I mean, he could do it. It was terrifying. If that was like somebody like a bodybuilder, I'd go, oh, okay. You know, so this argument I had with this fellow was that, oh, it never made sense, Michael Myers doing. How could he do any of it, Michael Myers? And I said, I, no. I, mean, I have to just be honest. Whoever, whoever said that doesn't really have a keen insight on, on movies. No, no. And then I would say to him, hello, he was the boogeyman. Hello. When he gets shot and falls out that window and there's only an impression of him on the grass. Oh my God, how brilliant, right? Yeah, well, there's no convincing uh, certain people, but I, I, I think sometimes they do change their perspective and it hits them when it's supposed to. Yeah. You know, these movies, Halloween was only, let's see, I was three years old when that came out, but I probably saw it at about five, no joke. And I mean, a five-year-old seeing Halloween. Wow. Oh my God, please. So I, and I saw Madman around that same time too, five or six. Uh, so all of those movies were hitting me at once. And to me at that age, they were all equally as terrifying. And in some cases, the grungier ones were even scarier to me, you know? Yeah, yep, yep. Um, can you tell me, I guess in terms of, because I do want to get to the set of Mad Men. I want to, I want to, I want to take the audience to the set and what it's like at night and what it's like in the daytime and, and some of the conversations you had. But before we do that, what's really the, I mean, because there's so many films kind of alike horror films that came out in that era. Friday the 13th, Mad Men, Halloween, Hills Have Eyes a few years earlier, Texas Chainsaw a few years earlier than that. Um, are they are they all in the same realm of, of motion picture? Or what's really different about them? I think there, you know, first of all, you have to take away there was no CGI. Makeup people, special effects people had to try and create the illusion of what was happening that was horrific on the screen. And it's a huge challenge. Look at what look at what Carpenter did with the thing. I mean, look what Bob Bottin did. I mean, you know, they had to work with what was available. To, they had to be able to solve problems without the use of computer. Okay, and therein lies an artistic challenge because computers are yes a miracle in many ways, but there's something about relying on a computer-generated image or an AI image, which to me diminishes the artistic sense of what you're trying to do with the film. Um, 
everything in Madman was practical effects, all of it. Um, let me just say one thing about that, because I mentioned this to people. Um, as a horror guy, and one of the things they tried to do, Jensen Frawley, to promote Madman at the time was they built up a story that me, Paul Ehlers, was the world's greatest horror film fan. Uh, that's how they tried to promote the, to promote the movie. And here was the world's greatest horror film fan starring as a monster. I would say that's quite accurate. Yeah, well, they were accurate about it. And I don't know if that got people interested, but, you know, that, that's kind of what, that was the, the PR for the film. Here's this guy, loves monster movies, loves playing monsters or whatever, and now he's Madman Mars. So, yeah, they used that. And it was a smart way to go, you know? But, but the thing for me that I bring out, and I, I've said before, but I can't say it enough, is that seeing the film, I was 30 when I made the film. I had seen so much of so many films. My God, so many films. And being able to put myself into the mindset of a six, seven, eight-year-old boy watching a film, a horror film, is very, very, very hard to do. Okay, you can do it. And I think the films that succeed at it, you know, for instance, okay, let me let me jump to Tim Burton for Sleepy Hollow, right? That opening of Sleepy Hollow, when he's in that coach and they're going through the field with the jack-o'-lantern scarecrows, I actually went back to that time. I felt the magic and I was so impressed. Well, look at Tim Burton. Look, I mean, it's... He's talking about a story of a person where it's his life. It's who he is, you know? Oh, uh, certainly. And, you know, Sleepy Hollow, I loved it when it came out. I like it even more now. And I, I, obviously, a lot, you know, Coppola was one of the producers, but um, uh, Francis Coppola's Dracula, too. I, I adore Oh, him. yeah. I didn't even get into that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but what I was getting at, my point here was... Being 30 years old and being somewhat callous to horror and seeing everything, you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm doing the character and I'm even as I'm seeing the film, I'm saying to myself, I would give, if I had a magic lamp, I would give anything to see Madman through the eyes of the kid I was in the 50s to find out if it really was scary. Well, you're because, talking to him. Uh, it's relative to what you described when you saw the Hammer films. I was scared when I saw that, and I, you know, there, there was uh, when I was a kid. There, and I think you remember this. Obviously, what was it? The Four Thirty movie. Yeah. So the Four Thirty yeah. movie played a, a like slasher films, like Just Before Dawn and stuff like that, and that scared the hell out of me. I saw Madman as a kid, and I was terrified. And so it's, I think. And again, I was watching Hammer films too, and Universal horror films, and Abbott and Costello meets the Universal monsters. You know, uh, Frankenstein, Wolfman, and Dracula, um, Creature from the Black Lagoon. I saw all of those things at once, all at once in the same era. And so I can guarantee you that it's 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 similar. And you gave me nightmares, and it worked. And what the most important <laughs> part is that that it that I stuck with it. 
that it, it forged what I was going to be later and my interests for life, my interests for life. I watch these movies now and I mean, I guess partially nostalgia, but I still love them very much. And it, looking at them as a, as a movie maker and, and I can see them objectively too. And I have no problems with it. I couldn't go through life being like some of these YouTube critics that, that just live to tear things apart. I, I couldn't possibly live with myself. As an artist, which you are, okay, what you do with this, with this history in your life is that worked for me as a child. How can I step it up? How can I go further with this? Can I do today something that is terrifying? And you understand what that is. And I really look forward to seeing whatever you're working on, man, because I know you have the pedigree here. You have well, the history. I promised myself I wouldn't make a horror film until I was ready. And I've been writing it since January, and I promise. I, I'm gonna. It's at the very least, it'll be everything I could possibly give, you know. Um, and it's really well thought out, and I love it. So let's see what happens. You know, <clears throat> I think I look forward to it. I I know you're gonna do the right thing with it. Uh, and when we had the opening, by the way, people went. Uh, my friends all went. You know, they're all thirty, and they grew up on horror films, and. You know, we'd seen everything, you know, so, you know, they're looking at it and they were, they were very kind to me. You know, I said, wow, man, you really good. You did that. But I didn't get the sense that it frightened them. It wasn't until <clears throat> the early 2000s that I get a call from West Vance from Dead Pit Radio. And he got my number somehow. It was like 2004, and I'm not trying to insult him, but I get a call, and he goes, "Do I have Paul Ehlers, the real Madman Mars?" And I said, "Yes." It was Gomer Pyle contacted you. Yeah, it was he, and what a voice he had when he sang. But Wes is, you know, is from Kentucky, and him and his, his buddy Aaron and. You know, he was apparently looking for me. It's one of his favorite movies. He's got a 35 millimeter print of it, as does Quentin Tarantino, which is so cool. I mean, that, you know, Quentin cared enough about it to actually get a 35 millimeter print, man. Yeah, no, he, he's, he loves movies, Tarantino. Um, did he ever get in contact with you? No, he hasn't. And, uh, it's funny, my son Jonathan, who is, is out in Hollywood, and, and he himself a screenwriter and filmmaker, um, he was at a showing, I think at the New Beverly, and he, uh, he had gone to the bathroom, and Quentin was in the bathroom, in the men's room. Oh, no. And he sp- yeah, that in itself is terrifying. And, he sp- and John speaks up. And he, and, and he killed Quentin. He killed him, and the guy you see now is all makeup. It's actually a fabricated Quentin Tarantino. You know, you know, it's probably why he only wants to do 10 films because he was told that if he goes any further, everything will rot off of him and he won't be recognizable. So let's hope that's not the case. But he says to Quentin, who may have had a, you know, a couple of cocktails, uh, he says, Mr. Tarantino, I just want to mention to you, uh, 
my dad is Paul Ehlers, Madman Mars. And he, he paused. He said, get out. Really? And he his thought was he loved the scene with the axe where it comes out of the stump. And he was telling that to John. God, that scene with the axe. I love it. So he got to meet him, meet him quickly. But again, what 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 really worked for me when Wes got a hold of me and I wound up, we did a, uh, a showing of Mad Men at the Cinema Arts Center in Huntington. Um, and uh, we had a showing of Mad Men and Joey has passed since then. And he he came out from Queens and we did a showing of Mad Men. And we were in shock. The audience was filled with relatively young people. And, and that's even stronger now. But before we, we get to this, because I want that to be kind of the last verse, if we can talk about your experience on set. Uh, so so maybe, um, okay, so you're casted. And uh, specifically, they're working on makeup. And they forge that. They get everything ready. And where was the location that you shot in? And what was like the first first day getting out there like yeah we uh apparently uh joey and and uh, gary had checked a lot of places uh gary had been uh very familiar with the cropsy maniac story from upstate new york and what the first story that he wrote the first screenplay he did with joey was supposed to be cropsy and um that's the story they started writing. And when they started auditioning people, by the way, actors would come in and say things like, you know, I read for a film just like this a while back. And as it turns out, of course, uh, the burning was in the process of being made. So Gary and Joey had to scramble and change the script. And they came up with the character Madman Mars and so forth and so on. So in uh, other words, Madman was originally Cropsy. Yes, it was the Cropsy Maniac, you know. Wow. So, so you know, and uh, just a side note again, we'll get back onto onto point here. Uh, <laughs> this this story, I may have said this before. My son Jonathan uh, grew up in Queens, uh, actually in the same building. I. I was there for a few years uh, with my ex, with his mom, Jane, and um, and he went to a public school not far from there, PS 99, which actually is the same PS 99 my, my friend Ken went to that I used to make movies with, okay? So Jonathan was in a class with this, this young boy, uh, elementary school, named Davey Davidson, and my ex was talking to Davy's mom, and she said, uh, you know, my husband was in a horror film. And she said, really, what was it called? And it was called The Burning. So Jonathan's friend in elementary school was Lou David's son. Who played Cropsy and and how crazy is that? That's another interesting stroke of fate. Yes, yes. Think about that. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, we're on set. They they checked a lot of different locations. They looked upstate. They they settled on a kind of a retreat out in Noyak on Long Island. Uh, you pretty much you go out on Route 27 heading to Montauk, 
And right after Southampton, there's a split for North Sea, Noyak, okay? And uh, it's not quite all the way to Sag Harbor. It's prior. But there, on a pond, which was actually a saltwater uh, tributary, there was a bungalow colony. And Tony and Susan Lodato, I think, owned it. And what it was was a main house and all these very rustic cabins. And what they decided to do was they wanted to be within range of taking the dailies into Manhattan to be processed. So by being two hours, two and a half hours out from the city, or actually a little more, uh, they could bring in the dailies, have them, have them develop, and get back and screen them on location. But we moved into uh, Fish Cove Inn, Fish Cove, and we took up residency there. They, they used part of the main house for uh, Mars House, where his children were sleeping in the various rooms. When he marches around with the axe and does in his, his son, daughter, and wife. And uh, that was filmed there. Uh, Mars uh, Lair, which was uh, the house when you see me in the basement, what they did is they took over the basement of Fish Cove Inn and you'll go down these wooden steps and there was this kind of gnarly, funky basement there. And it had these double doors that opened to the outside. And they had scouted in Quag uh, an abandoned house. And this house, man, was was incredible. I mean, it's the one shown in the film. When, when, when Max says, you know, that old house over there, that's where Mars used to live. And so all of these were locations, existing locations. None of these were sets built no, in some no. soundstage somewhere. See, nope. and that's the thing. It, it has a, such a unique character that often is never replicated, no matter how good the artists are. Yeah. You can't seem to nail something that really exists. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or like Madman, yeah. these are real locations. You, you, you can't yeah. replicate that. You just can't. You can't. And, and this old house, the weird thing about the house was everything in that house was in that house. Okay? I mean, pictures hanging on the wall, old furniture. A dilapidated piano, the staircase, the upstairs, the attic. It was all there. So all we had to just do is walk through it, you light it, and use it as a set. So this was apparently Morris Farmhouse. Now, the interesting thing is when you would go into the basement, we did not use the basement of that house, okay? Uh, what we did is they dressed the basement of the main house of Fish Cove, of that house. And, and you would see people go down steps and then they would be really going down the steps to the, the main house at Fish Cove. And they transformed that into my lair with the candles and the whatever. And somebody had found the stuffed woodchuck and that was hanging on the wall and the ax and the rope was all in there. So, you know, when I would leave, you know, when I went out to do my prowling, I would kind of grab that stuff and 
throw the rope on my shoulder and walk up the steps and open the double doors. And I would come out of the house in Quag. You'd see me walk out of that doorway. By the way, last time I ever ran, I don't run. <laughs> was in Madman. I kind of come out and I run across the field and I'm kind of grunting as I do it. And it's hilarious <laughs> to me because I really don't run. I think I learned martial arts because I wasn't good at running. I figure I'm going to fight. I'm going to stay put, you know? So, well, so most, I, most of the, uh, the killers in these films rarely ran, you know? No, they don't. They don't. And how anybody ever got killed by the mummy, you know, you deserved it. <laughs> you just deserved it. You know, come on. What are you kidding me? There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well... All these children were kidnapped and murdered, and you were a part of it. What would you tell them? I did approve of it, but there was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that all the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. So you're on set, and of course, now you're here. You, more than anybody on that set, had such a unique sense of, in a positive way, I guess, of self-consciousness. Oh, yeah. You know, because oh, yeah. It, you're, now you're on your monster movie, playing the monster. And when you're making a movie, a lot of people don't realize this. You're just so caught up in the act of doing, especially the main artisans, that you're not really thinking about anything but getting it right. 
and, and getting it and, and really focusing on, on doing the thing. But in your case, I think you had some time to really revel in the, in the atmosphere. Did, did you? I did. They, we had, uh, we had a little map uh, that had, you know, I have, you know, I've got to photograph this I saved it all and put it out in the world on Instagram for everybody to see. But it was a map with these little squares, which were the individual cottages and the names of the actors were on there. You know, it was like Alexis Steuben and whatever. And I joke and I say, it's a map of the stars homes. And, you know, we had these little teeny one room cabins that I was in. And what I would do, I was starting to say earlier, my friend Larry supplied me back then with a cassette of the music from the first Halloween. And I just found his theme from Michael to be so evocative to me. And it would put me in the, in the mindset that I needed to get into to play Mars. And I tried to exude that. So I would listen as I was getting ready to go over to makeup. I would be playing that over and over again. And Especially walk- back then, too. Oh, God, yeah. Because ha- it- Halloween was terrifying back then. I believe it was the umpteenth sequels that really kind of tainted the imagery. Yeah. I mean, it came out in 78. We shot Man Man in 80. I mean, it was like right on the tail end of it. So so I'm listening to music, and I'm getting in the mood. I would go into makeup. By the way, most people know this. They decided to shoot only at night, which I think created with the lighting. We had a really good cameraman, and Joey's directing, I think, worked so well. There is an eerie feeling to that film because it is, it's not day for night. It's night shooting. So sun goes down. I show up in makeup, in the little makeup cabin, and they get me in the coveralls and, and uh, you know, uh, my feet, I've told the, the foot story. I have little teeny nine and a half inch feet. Okay. They're not terrifying. Not to me, not to anyone. And when they were filming the first scene where I'm walking barefoot, uh, the cameraman starts snickering and I'm going, wait a minute, what the hell? And he calls Joey over to look through the lens and there I am with little ballerina feet as the cameraman put it. (laughs) So they had to scurry and they had to order those feet. So we had to wait for those feet to be created and for them to show up. So, you know, they went through a lot too. It was the only set of feet I had. So that and the hands, those wonderful claws, right? So uh, Joe Hansen would get me into uh, the feet when we had a shoot and she would use a hot glue gun to the seam that went up the side, she would glue it onto my feet. And by the end of the film, things latex took a real hit. And a couple of times, I remember putting the hot glue right on my leg, right on my, you know, which was delightful and kind of put me in enough of a mood to really attack these people. <laughs> so, so they did all that, but for the longest time, we had one hand available. And Joey used to crack up because I would use this one hand and like in Creature from the Black Lagoon, every time that hand came around a tree or a post or a thing, that's all I had to work with. So I put so much into the hand 
that Joe, when he was editing, and he's like, oh, my God, here he goes again with the hand. Oh, my God. But finally, we got a couple of hands, and that worked out. And uh, again, we didn't have duplicates. So it was kind of scary, you know. And, and, and what, uh, what time of the year was this? Fall. Yeah, we so, started at the end of September. Okay? Oh, boy. And we're on Long Island. And no, it's not Antarctica, but it gets cold at night. And the thing that happened that people, I think, are aware of who listen to extras is that you can't stop nature and leaves started turning brown or yellow or red, you know? So we had the crew going around trying to match the shots and painting leaves green so that it was consistent, you know? And uh, I got, very, look, first of all, it's nighttime. So right, nighttime is my favorite time. I'm sorry to say it is. I do my best creativity at night, all my... My knife designs, I've done, I always do them at night. So, so we're filming at night, sun goes down, we go out and we go on to location in the woods near these houses, into the main house, into all these areas. And we did not have a, a big stunt coordinator on the film. We had a few people helping out, but what Joey was relying on was my martial arts ability to be able to actually bash things, flip them over, lift them up, do all of it. I do all that stuff on camera. Um, you know, and uh, it was interesting because I guess all my years of breaking cinder blocks, right, which I used to be able to do. You know, I mean, there's one scene with cameras set up in a hallway and it's a scene where uh, Ellie is in the, in the house and I bash through the door, you know, uh, like in The Shining. <laughs> I bash through the door and I come after her and she slams an interior door behind, behind herself. And Joey said, uh, you know, we tried to rig something. It didn't really work. And Joe said, you know, you do karate and all that. He said, can you break this door off the hinges? I said, I think I can, you know? So he said, okay. So he tells the cameraman that. And, and Jim says, oh, he's not going to do this. He's not. So, I, so he sets up the camera on a low shot on the floor in the hall outside that door. And I said to him, you got to back that up. And he said, look, Paul, first of all, you're not going to be able to do this. I said, well, yeah. So when Joey calls action, I slam that thing with my palm like I used to, used to break stuff. The door comes off the hinges, falls, falls within an inch of the camera lens. Wham! It's a very quick scene. I think they cut it even shorter. But you hear that sound, bam, when I hit the door and it comes off the hinges. So I had to do that. I had to do some. And here's something that I may have intimated somewhere, but I think the actors... <laughs> The actors who are still around need to hear this. I um, I wore glasses back then, you know, and a lot of actors get contact lenses, but I didn't have any of those. So I'm wearing the mask and my left eye is obscured by latex. I can't see anything out of my left eye. And that's my good eye. So I've got one eye, my right eye available to me. 
I had to, I use only one scene do I use a fiberglass axe. It's the one I take to the conventions, but because I grabbed it after the film, it doesn't weigh anything, but you know, it looks like a big heavy axe. I really only use it in one scene. I raise it up behind one of the actors. And, uh, but for the rest of the film, I'm using a real sharpened axe. And I had to get really close swinging this thing to the actors. And I don't think Joey ever told anybody that I couldn't see that well. <laughs> and I was relying on any of you out there that do martial arts know that a lot of times when we get instruction or we're showing something, we have a way of holding a punch just an inch away from the body, from the head. So I had that ability. So I had to kind of rely on my spidey sense to not really take anybody's head off. So, you know, so all of that's really happening. I'm really slamming that thing into trees. All that, that's a real axe and I'm really doing it, you know? But that was tough having the one eye because I remember some of the scenes after the scene with the truck, um, Joey set up the camera. He's, he's in the bushes and, uh, and, and Bill and Ellie come upon the truck. Ellie comes upon the truck and I'm standing over the body, right? Uh, of the girl who lost her head, uh, in, 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 uh, in the engine. And I'm looking at the body and Joey's telling me, all right, I'm going to give you a signal and you're going to turn, look at the camera and make, you know, as everyone knows, I do voiceovers. I'm very good at it. And my dialogue in the film is variations of, <laughs> so yes, how, how as my, my dog. That was perfect. Is hearing that it's perfect, so that's the voice I'm doing. So I don't get you know, if I was like doing Shakespearean, who would tell me, Hello, my name is Madman Miles. Did you just call my name? You know, no, I so I do all that, and Joey's singing on me, and I couldn't really see him, you know. So some of the scenes I had to just kind of instinctively turn and do what I had to do, but but um, it became fascinating being this character because when we began we would break we'd have breakfast which was in the dark we would then have lunch around midnight we'd break and we had this communal dining room area and we all sat there in the dining room and, we, and all the actors we all sat together and we bs'd about how everything went and it was cold we talked about that and i started noticing that near the end of the shoot, and I'm killing all these people, suddenly I was sitting alone at a table. Nobody was sitting with me. And I didn't put it together till the end going, oh my God, okay. Yeah, they don't want to sit with an axe murderer, you know? But that kind of happened, and that just naturally happened. So that, ra that raises an interesting question. Was there anybody, okay, I mean, obviously... On set, I want to ask, and also after the movie came out, was there anybody that approached you about violence? And, you know, as as some people these days, they come in the form of trolls. But back then, they would approach you. Did anyone ever approach you and try and, uh, I guess, either question you or condemn you for the violence? In the oh, yeah. They'd, one of the guys on the crew, uh, early on, pretty early on, he comes up to me. I'm in makeup. I'm standing off 
waiting for my shot, waiting to start the shot. And he's saying to me, hey, Paul, you like doing this, don't you? You get some kind of vicarious kick out of cutting up people. And I'm like, I look at him like, what? <laughs> you know, and I, I reported it to Joey. I had to, you know, because if he was going to do this every day, every night, I should say, when I was filming, they fired him. They took they took him off the shoot. They took and him. What off was his shoot. trip? Did he ever even explain himself? No, no, no. I don't know. I wasn't there when he had the meeting with Joe. Uh, I just know he was gone. And uh, Joe had a sense of trying to keep a harmony on the set, you know. And that's not cool. You can't have somebody on set saying that. I mean, they just don't. Imagine that with you know, with, you know, with with castle and halloween somebody saying to him you like doing this shit you know or in, yeah any any movie where someone's playing a murderer and there are tons of them over over throughout history and so also you know just to jump ahead for a second and we'll come back to the set when the movie was released did you receive any kind of backlash in regard to the violence of the day no i really didn't uh people no I didn't. And I think it's interesting because I told you my wife and I are known as Mr. and Mrs. Halloween here at the house because of what I do with the kids. And, um, you know, I, I don't think any of them knew that I was in this film. Really fascinating. They, they didn't know. And one time after I, after I was doing uh, conventions, I had a big blow up of the poster that said Madman, right? And I put it out on my porch on an easel. And I remember one of the fathers looked at it and I said to someone, you know, that's me. And he said, oh, yeah, you're really a madman. <laughs> you didn't realize. They didn't know. It's you interesting, know? you know, because you, you had a heavy prosthetics on that obscured your identity. And I wondered if anybody had given you any backlash for the violence in the movie, whereas someone like David Hess or Joe Spinell, they use their real identities, you know, their real faces in both Maniac and Last House on the Left. And those guys did. They were walking through the street and people didn't want to go near them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that didn't happen so much. Uh, in fact, it was interesting. The few children and, you know, here we have a camp for, for advanced children. And what are there, five kids in the camp and more counselors than kids? You know, people often talk about that. What kind of camp is this? What kind of camp is in the fall, you know? But yeah, I mean, you can be critical of anything you see, read, listen to. I, I cannot subscribe to that uh, cult. Nope, I just can't nope, do it. nope. You know, and it's all about toadies and naysayers. And, you know, nobody, until they try to do this, you know, anybody who thinks now, of course, well, iPhones, oh, I'm a movie maker. I can make films. Really? Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. You know, but okay. Um, so we shot at night. Uh, we would break for, for lunch at midnight and we go basically till dawn. We were very much on a vampire schedule. It was fascinating. I mean, and we went over, over our shooting time. We went almost from the end of September till the first week or two of December. Wow. So you shot through Halloween. Right through Halloween. And we shot there on Halloween. And 
I think at that time, um, I was living elsewhere. I was not living here. Okay. And uh, uh, so we're on set doing, I remember Halloween night when we broke for lunch, uh, Tony, who owned the place, uh, uh, was very creative in terms of cooking. And what he did was we had fish for dinner and he skinned them and he took the skins and laid them out on a, plant, a plate, a uh, serving dish to look like snake skins. So that was, that was our Halloween night. It was great, actually. I was, you know, we were kidding around with everybody. We were, I think all the actors, we were carving pumpkins, right? Which we love doing. And there's Madman. I wish there must be photographs of this. I don't know. How oh, I would love to see those. Any, um, any uh, footage behind the scenes, 16 millimeter footage or any documentary footage? I think that whatever is, was shot, I think Gary has got a load of footage that he's maybe either waiting to go through. I, I'm not sure. You know, you've seen some of the extras, right? So, Gary, if you're listening to this right now, it is time. Yeah, go through that stuff, cut it up, put it out. You know, let people see the the blooper reels on this stuff. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, there there's a lot of things that didn't go right. You know, I mean, the poor rats in the scene in the basement when I lit those candles. The poor rat, we, we they were white rats. I've talked about this, and we sprayed them gray so they would look more authentic. And the poor thing stuck its nose in the flame, and it burst into flame. Oh my god. Yeah, and I had to put. I'm putting out the rat with the madman hands. I somewhere there's got to be a shot like that. That would that would be incredible. But you know that kind of thing. I mean, you know, um, we didn't really come across. There wasn't too much activity at night going on. You know, you would think maybe people would come around and watch and stuff, but no, not really. Um, uh, there's the famous story I've told of of the girls, the actresses. Uh, were aware of someone creeping around in the woods around the set and they saw him peering through the bushes and so forth and one night when I was in makeup and I wasn't really filming Joey takes me aside he said uh, Paul since you're in costume you want to go and try and find this guy and kind of put a little fear into him scare him and get him off the set so it was so cool because I'm thinking everything else I'm acting. Now I get to act and actually scare somebody. So I went out looking around the woods and, you know, I couldn't find him. I guess lucky for him, I didn't find him. But, um, you know, it, it was, there was a lot of camaraderie on set. We, we all got along great. Uh, you know, uh, people were terrific, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, looking back too, I mean, like I said, uh, that I intimated a few times in this talk is that it wasn't until I did Chilla Theater. And my friend Kevin Clement does Chilla for 30 something years now. And just for the people that don't know, Chiller Theater is a huge horror, uh, sci fi, and fantasy convention. They are. They are in, in New York, in New Jersey, right? And it's in New Jersey. And I used to attend as a horror fan. For years, I attended his convention, Kevin's convention. Not so much to meet um, actors, 
But I used to go to collect art. I collected fantasy art. I collected garage kit models. I all kinds of horror-related stuff. I would walk out of that show with bags full of horror-related items. And, you know, uh, Kevin had seen the movie, and he liked it. And his head uh, his head of security, Chris Kiska, big, tall guy, um, he was one of his favorite horror movies. And, you know, Kevin said to me back in 2004 or whenever, he said, Paul, why don't you do the show? And I said back then, ah, oh, come on, Kevin, what, I have three fans? And he said, no, not really, man. You'd be surprised. So we get the table. We do the thing. We did a bunch of shows. And, you know, I went nuts putting out my fantasy knives on the table, a madman head that I somebody had made, all these great things. And my son did the show with me. Eddie did it. And here's the point. I told you I would have given anything to have been in the mind of a seven, eight-year-old going into a theater seeing this film. People came up to me, people now in their 30s, some of them maybe older, even some kids. They would say to me, Paul, I just wanted to tell you, you scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. I it's like I won the lottery. I went, really? They say, yes, I had nightmares. I, had, I wouldn't go out in the dark. We used to, you know, bet a dollar that you won't go out in the, in the yard at night and say Madman Mars loud. And right. people would, yeah. And, th and that's only going to continue because the thing is, Madman can be seen not only on these fantastic special edition discs, Blu-ray, uh, but also, it's readily available on Tubi. It's ready to it, all of these streaming networks are playing them on, um, I believe, on Shutter also. But it's so accessible right now that you're going to have all of these generations forthcoming, and that's a wonderful thing that it's out there and so available to everyone. That they're just going right, right. You, so they, so where it was limited to having to order the Blu-ray, now. You have millions of people that can just watch it by clicking on an, on an image and watching it. And that's what's happening right now. And so, you know, the only thing you can do is predict and compare it to what's already happened since it's been wider available. It's been talked about more. It's been celebrated more by people that remember it when it first came out. Can I go back to when it first came out in theaters? So, so it took almost two months in terms of its shooting schedule? Two months, too. Two months and a little more. Uh, one of the horrific things that happened while we were filming is John Lennon was killed. And uh, we stopped shooting for that day, that night. Uh, it was pretty rough on everyone. You know, and that so. was a big deal, too. Whereas, oh, you know, there's yeah. death all around us right now and, and school shootings and public shootings and madness. John Lennon dying and this was 1980 right okay dying in 1980 was a big deal can you describe why it, it, you know this wasn't going on there, there were there were your you know your handful of maniacs that would do things there was always violence on the streets i mean new york was a had for many years in the 70s was a very violent place 
And someone who I heard a thing recently with Yoko saying, who would shoot an artist? An artist. What is the point? And we were so shocked. I mean, everybody was, you know, it took us, took us aback so much that we didn't want to work. We didn't want it. We couldn't. We, we couldn't take ourselves out of the mindset that they had just shot somebody that we all idolized as, as young people. And, you know, and today we become so callous. It doesn't mean anything. It's it's like, what does it mean? Five killed, 10 killed, 18 killed. What the hell is going on? I think it's infinitely more detrimental than any of the naysayers or the um, so-called public interest groups or parent groups or religious groups that condemn the horror films of the era of madman. It's, It's a million times worse what's being done to us with news, you know, because their slogan, if it bleeds, it leads. They they don't mind telling us how horrible the world is, but the world is not just horrible. No, and, no. And I, you put a uh, quote up recently from Frank Zappa that I put on my Facebook page as well, talking about, you know, there's life out there. There's wonder out there. There are glorious things all around us. You have to take the time to go and find them. They're there. There's beauty. There's magic. It's there. Okay? It really is. And, you know, life is short. It is, relatively, you know? And uh, and it could be a lot shorter if any of you out there would like to say Madman Mars tonight. Uh, <laughs> good luck with that one. Um, but, so, yeah. No, it's true. And you get... you got to live out many of your dreams. And this was a huge, um, this was a, I believe it was destiny. I believe it was something that you had truly wanted deep in your soul and existence and you made it happen. And so the movies, the movie wraps, you know, principal photography stops. How long of a time elapsed between the last day of shooting and the time it was finally in theaters? We had, I was at a friend's house. Actually, my friend Larry was gone. Uh, I was at a New Year's uh, Eve party at his house, uh, January of 81. And we had the TV on and it was prior to dropping the ball, right? And somebody calls and says, my God, come in here. And it was the first TV trailer for Madman. In 1981, January, that night, we were the first trailer that was broadcast on TV. And it was so exciting. And interestingly, my current wonderful wife, Eddie, uh, who I knew through other artist friends back then, did not even know me at the time. But she had, she had known I was in this movie. And she was one, she bought, she had one of the first Betamaxes and she was working as a, an art director and she bought it on her own and she had a Betamax because she loved film. She loved Hitchcock and it was a way she, re, she could record and edit all these classics she loved. And because she knew I was in this film, she went out of her way to catch 
all the spots on TV, the 30 second, the one minute, the two minute. Uh, <clears throat> and interestingly, the early, the early trailers, the voice you hear uh, narrating the voiceover on the trailer is the same gentleman that did the Jaws trailer. So I, that's kind of a cool thing. But, um, you know, we had our opening. Oh, yeah. He had such an iconic voice. Oh, what an amazing voice. And we had our opening at, by the way, so my wife, Eddie, had all this stuff on Betamax. It was amazing. So when we got together and 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 we, we brought our lives together, uh, she showed me some of the stuff. I couldn't believe it. And that's fake, too, in a way, I think, you know, but... Uh, but uh, I'm not going to go into the story about Jonathan being born during filming. Why? Never, well, okay, fine. Well, ah! I was going to ask you about that because the way the way I wanted to explain this was so so because I didn't hear the story from you until years later. So in the '80s, uh, there was another Twilight Zone riff, and Spielberg was involved, called Amazing Stories, and I remember watching this on TV when it premiered. It was a story about, right, right. It was the making of a horror film, but it was a, mum, a dark mummy movie. And the guy, his, his wife is about to have a baby and he escapes from the set to go and be there for the birth of his, his child. And, but it, the townsfolk are idiots and they think, and there's an old legend of a, a mummy, a killer mummy. That they chase him down with torches. It's 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 fantastic. It's great comedy horror, and he ends up being there for the birth. I wonder because you have a very similar story. Did did your story carry on through filmmaking circles and it influenced that amazing stories episode? And then please tell me what happened. I think it had to because um, everyone knew that John's mom Jane was pregnant, and by the way, she. She she let me go ahead and make this film, and she she was living with her parents at the time, and uh, she said, "No, this is your whole life. You know, everything has led to this point. Please go do it." So she was pregnant, and she was due that fall, and Gary got me an old-fashioned doctor's beeper, and I had it kind of nestled away in my coveralls, and we would talk about it when we got near that time. Um, we had a meeting and I told them I'm like two hours out from the hospital here in, uh, in Noyak. And if this thing goes off guys, I have to get back and be there. Okay. And everyone understood and everyone was fine with that. And sure enough, one night, I don't know, it was two, I can't remember the time exactly, but beep, 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 the thing goes off. Everybody scrambles. I try to get Johansson, the makeup girl. She's off doing something. Uh, they kind of hastily took off the masks and this and that. And I had glue and I had some latex still stuck on my hand. And uh, I had stage blood all over my clothing. I looked awful. And I told them, I got to go. I got to go. So I jumped in my car and I sped off. And at that time of night, you could get on Route 27, then the expressway pretty quick. So I got there in like record time and not thinking of how I looked. And I jump out of the car and I'm in the front of the hospital and I go up to some guards and I said, uh, please, 
tell me, uh, where's maternity? I couldn't even think. And they look at me and they go, sir, you want emergency? Go around and back. <laughs> oh, God. So that's kind of what happened. So, yes, I think, by the way, talk about that. You know, I remember in seeing um, Crystal Skull, if you remember right, Indy, when they're going to fire off the first one of the early atomic bombs, he dumps everything out of a refrigerator and gets into a refrigerator, which saves yes. him from the explosion. Like, of where course. did that come from? <laughs> we, you know, we did that in our film, you know, and I often wonder about that. You know, I... I I, I wonder about that. By the way, a fun story. When we're filming the scene where uh, Ellie runs, uh, limps and screams and goes down that hallway and comes around the corner and gets in the refrigerator, you can. it's a two shot. So you see me <clears throat> walking up from the hallway in the background, passing under these lights in this narrow hallway. And I never quite understood right away that people were laughing. I thought they were laughing at me. They were laughing at her getting in the refrigerator. But it was funny. One when we took a break from that, the cameraman, Jim, I'm walking down this corridor, and both of us had a great love for the original thing from another world, the Howard Hawks uh, film. And, uh, and he picked up some cardboard tube and the guys are going, we got to get him in the middle of a walkway. And I'm walking as Mars down the hallway. And they, they throw the thing. And I go, Ow! and I jump up on, on the walkway. It was a great moment. It was, we had this wonderful thing moment, which, which was, was so cool. was so cool. That's fantastic. Are there any other moments that happened on the set that were just... Um either spontaneous, out of the ordinary, exciting, dangerous? Well, you know, we had to, um, one of the, you know, Gary and Joey were not horror film people. And they, you know, I would, I didn't realize as, as someone who's hired to be in a movie, you're not really supposed to make suggestions, you know? And I didn't know. I was all excited about stuff. I remember at one point I grabbed a, a spot and I picked it up and Joey said, put that down. You know, don't touch this. That's, you just do your part, you know. And I'm like, oh, I wanted to help, you know. So um, we, 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 we would shoot things. And the, the interesting thing, I'll tell you, the good thing about latex is that I was the only one who was warm. Okay, between the overalls and the long sleeve shirt and the hands and the mask and the feet. And I, I was really warm. And they, they set up a salamander, which is a heating unit and a tent for the actors to sit in, excuse me, between shots because it was really freaking cold. And I'm bopping around. I'm doing fine with just being warm, you know, and but. There, there were some downs, some funny thing. There were things that happened. You talk about uh, wardrobe failures in the film. When I'm, when I come up to the bus, the school bus, and I'm trying to rip open the door, and uh, and uh, Betsy grabs this baseball bat. It was a solid bat. It was red plastic, but it was solid. It was not a wiffle bat. 
and she was really getting into character, and I'm trying to reach into the door, and she's whacking my fingers with this thing. And it took every bit of martial arts training to not freak out from the pain. And I'm going, and I'm reaching out for the thing, and I, you know, and it was hard to stay in character. And she actually knocked one of the fingers off uh, the latex hand, and we had to glue that glue that back on. Thank God we had it, you know. But uh, I, I'd say we were very lucky that we didn't have a failure of any of uh, of the makeup. I, you know, one thing I look back now, and being a collector, okay, a collector of horror memorabilia and everything involved and i my son was born i when we wrapped i wanted to get back and see my kid you know and we kind of wrapped and what i did is i went into the props uh cabin and i always wanted to grab that that fiberglass axe and now that i look back on it why didn't i grab the bodies of my family that were hanging in the basement. Why didn't I take part of the rope? Why didn't I grab the now, Were those things accessible to you at the time? They were just going to toss them out or you could well, I, didn't, I didn't know what they were going to do, but I was in such a hurry to get back to my son that I left everything there. And looking back on it now, I said, oh, my God, I could have had the original head, the hands. Does anybody have that stuff? I don't believe so. I think Joe Hansen, uh, the woman that was in charge there, uh, who took care of it, according to Gary, uh, it just crumbled. It crumbled. It fell right, back. after time. Yeah, you know. But any I, other props were saved or anything like that? Somebody has TP's belt buckle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they have it. Now, I've said to Gary, who's got that belt buckle? I don't know whether or not Tony Nunzi, Tony Fish, Tony Nunziata, the late Tony. I don't know if he grabbed it at, in when we wrapped. Who has the hot it, tub? <laughs> yeah, that was in the building. And that, you know, I tell this to people. For years, I would take friends. And when you and I were there. We went out to the location. And very weirdly, this was a really beautiful spot on this little uh, lagoon, the saltwater lagoon with woods and these cabins. And we would go back and year after year, the buildings were abandoned and left there. They would start to crumble and fall apart. For years, the yellow truck was parked in the middle of the cabins. Um, and each time I went, it was more and more of a degraded condition. I actually have pictures. So at some point, I will put up various postings of the times that I went there. And I went out there with you and Terry Wickham that time. And uh, I don't think there was anything left then, you know. And the weird thing is all around the property, there are what people like to call McMansions. I mean, there's these modern houses and they're really expensive homes and they're on the water. But the property where we filmed has not been touched. I don't know why. I like to think it's because it's haunted. <laughs> but Were there I, any ghost stories in the area at the time? No, nothing that, no, no. And, and, you know, we used to talk, we used to do stories and we talk around. I love telling stories. I, I remember I told the golden arm one night, which I love doing. 
you know, so I, I would do that. But, you know, it had a certain feel to it there. Apparently, it was also like a Buddhist retreat. And according to the owners, there was a vortex area, a portal out in, there's a field that has a certain amount of gravel. And there was a portal out there where they said it was an energy point. And he, before we rented the area, he would he would have people come out and stay there and go meditate in that field, all that. So it was kind of a charged area, which is kind of neat, you know? So Yeah. And a lot of people don't consider that uh, possibility, even even areas that are very dangerous, you know? No, they don't. And, uh, you know, I, uh, years ago, uh, I knew, I knew the author Dan Greenberg and, uh, in, in the seventies I had met with him. He wrote a book called something's there, uh, about the occult. And he was a comedy writer prior, but I, I met with him a few times and we talked about seeing if we could go in with psychics to haunted homes or areas and try to get it on camera. And we're talking about the 70s, way before ghost hunters or anything. And um, at the time, uh, we were trying to uh, uh, actually negotiate getting into the house. We were going to try to spend the alleged night of the murders at the house with myself and Dan Greenberg and some psychics. And we were trying to film the energy in the Amityville house. But uh, DeFeo from prison didn't allow it. He didn't allow it. I don't know if he had some deals going on with other filmmakers, but we were going to, and that's talking early 1970s, man. We were going to go in there and maybe be the first people to really film something like that. I don't know how. So that was before, was that before the book came out? uh, I, I think it was. Okay. I think oh. I'm not, I can't say for sure, but I don't know. Hans Holzer did, you know, you, you know, a lot of the shows. Did he ever do any live coverage of haunted areas back in the day? Oh yeah. I mean, live, I, I don't remember, but I know that he recorded things in haunted areas back then. Of, yes, very much so. And then, um, you know, there was a seance with the Warrens at Amityville I believe just after the Lutzes got out of there after the 28 days. Um, but Long Island's a really, I just had a, I just did a previous episode discussing how there are so many things that happened on that. I mean, I grew up there, you know, it's like so many things that happened on that Island growing up in that time period too, when I was a kid that are kind of horrific, but parallel to a lot of the horror films we were watching, even films that were coming out, you know, the summer of uh, that Friday the 13th part four came out. There was a horrific murder in the woods of a kid not far from my house. They carved his eyes out, stabbed him 40 times in the chest and made him, Ooh. you know, in the name of Satan, allegedly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's what we grew up with. So I, you know, I forged the whole conversation around that, but in this case, so Madman was filmed on Long Island too. Yes. And, yes. Um, and then it's finished, and then it's in theaters. Yes. What What happened after it was released? Um, you know, it, can you take me back there? It 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 
did a number of theaters around the country. And uh, we were actually in variety. I remember we looked at, at the, the grosses for a couple of weeks. And at one point, we were ahead of some major films. People loved horror. And even today, I think horror films are one of the few other than, uh, you know, a Marvel movie or a Disney film that still make it onto screens. You know, they bring in people. People want to be scared. And, you know, and they will go and they will go go into a theater, you know? Um, oh, yeah. There'll be another. I mean, there's already it's already begun. Another golden age of um, independent and studio horror pictures. But independent pictures have already proven recently. You don't need stars. You know, all of the all of those original films had no stars in them, really. I mean, every now and then they'd they'd get like a John Saxon or someone like that. You know, like yeah, yeah. But, but you um, know, it, interesting with that is that because we never had a sequel, and I always remember it's funny. I remember my son's age, but I especially remember his age because he's born in 1980 in November, right? So. He's 43 years old, right? And uh, he went on, I guess, from very much what your parents had done with you for, you know, growing up with a dad who was in a horror movie and loved fantasy and monster movies and action movies and Indiana Jones, all of it. You know, he had he had a real lesson in this. And I would show him the better films. I gave him a sense of understanding soundtracks. Uh, he knows I am a huge fan of Jerry Goldsmith, and you know he grew up with this, so he had gone. That's that's an interesting thing because I know that. Okay, you know, and just to kind of condense this and make this a little stronger, it's um, see. So in this case, it took it took some years for Madman to really uh, become what it is now, which is a very celebrated horror film all over the world, and. That's a glorious thing. But the one thing it didn't do where a lot of the others did, I mean, The Burning never did. And The Burning kind of had its a, a new heyday for itself. But it seems like Madman has much more fandom than The Burning. And um, and for and I, I know why, too, because it's a little more likable as opposed to The Burning is a little, little grislier. Um, in this case, though, it still have, hasn't had a sequel. And you mentioned John and... You know, I happen to know because I talked to you uh, behind the scenes that you, John, and the original producers are all talking yes. about a sequel. Can you tell us about that? We are. Um, we had gone to a party in Manhattan 15 years ago, perhaps, and uh, and uh, uh, Brian Norton was having a thing with a lot of people getting together. He was a huge horror fan, huge Madman fan. And I was at this party with all these horror guys who appreciated horror. And they said, what happened? Why did you guys never make a sequel? And we talked about it. And the point was that Joey did not consider himself a horror director. He really didn't. I mean, he did a wonderful job with this film. And he never wanted to make another film, I believe, between Gary and Joey. Uh, they wrote a sequel that never came together. So it all kind of died down and was just went out into the ether. And I remember talking to my son about it, and he had moved out to California. 
he was uh, he was uh, working for a lot of different companies out there. He was doing screenwriting. He had he had done an indie film around the time that you did Montauk uh, called Ink and Steel, uh, which is available on Amazon, which he directed with his partners Patrick uh, Patrick and uh, Jay, and uh, we got a bunch of awards. They don't matter really, but. But he had done all that, and he befriended someone from a studio out in California, and his his chops started improving as a screenwriter. And I said to him, why don't we attempt to write either a reimagining or a sequel to Madman? Because as a horror fanatic, every time I went, every time we wrapped, every morning when I went back to my cabin, I thought about the various kills and murders in the film. Although some of them are terrific, okay? The scene with the truck is, is is classic and wonderful. I would think about how I would have done some of these kills. And I always wrote them down. So as my son started getting better at screenwriting, we took a shot at doing a, remat, a writing of the story and with the kills I had in mind. And we did that. That was like 15 years ago. And uh, we really couldn't get traction at the time. But he's been at it a long time now. And we have put together a, uh, a script for a sequel 43 years later called uh, Madman 2 Axe Fest. And we're working on that at the moment, you know, and... Uh, and he would be directing. So I think it's 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 kind of a full circle, interesting thing with the universe that here is the son of Madman Mars directing the sequel 43 years later to the original Madman. And our hope is that that will happen, you know? So, I hope so too. Um, I want to talk about, you know, horror sequels for a second because I, sure. I, I know you know... I know you feel a certain way about a lot of them, but if it's done correctly, and I think very few people understand what that means, um, because I think number one, you would have to completely understand the zeitgeist of that type of genre, when it came out, why it continues to affect people, because I believe it's all of those things that are captured in that era that 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 movie is that represents that's like a snapshot in time you can't replicate it but i guess you can you can do something just as honest and in recent times in its own right you know like the terrifier films have done that and that's why it caught on with so many people that's why i believe because there's a tons of movie with gore and people getting killed and all that stuff i mean those movies are brutal but there's something about them that's very honest to the the place and time that it's made and that it captures a moment and time that's I that's authentic and I and I think in many ways that works on a subtle level. So for a sequel to Madman and it would it would require the same thing I think and it would require now a lot of elements of that honesty that worked with the first one. And it's charming to people because it is an independent, it's an independent film and it, it works really well. It's like when, when Toby Hooper made a sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he clearly 
and intentionally made that crazy, and some may say cocaine-fueled sequel. But it was also brilliant. It's just he consciously said, there's no way I'm going to be able to replicate this. So I guess what I'm saying is either you have to capture what was done originally perfectly, or you've got to capture something just as honest and be as flamboyant, insane, daring, offensive as possible. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. We'll try for all that. Like Madman's not Kal-El, you know, like he's a horrible, bigoted killer, kills women, kills children. He has to remain that guy. <laughs> he does have to remain that guy. Although he didn't, he never killed anybody after his initial children. So you know, but uh, but who knows, man? I mean, uh, we have made a big deal in this one about not saying that name, and uh, we're really sticking to that. Um, it turns out that the town where all this happened, the people in the village won't even say the name to this day. So we're playing with that a lot, but it's, uh, you know, Madman's he's been a little quiet, but you know, he'll do anything to get out of those trees and come visiting. You know, I would not play him by the way. I, I couldn't do it justice, but I certainly will be in it somewhere. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I have a lot to do with the screenplay and I, a lot of them, are going to be the kills I wanted to see. Would you get the? Would you create the same atmosphere? Get the same composer? You know, I think it, it would need. Well, it. if if we can get Stephen Orlick to come back after having worked on on the Electric Company or whatever he did for Sesame, God, he used to do that. He did Harcum first, and he did everything. But I reading think Rainbow, I, he did reading Rainbow. I think his score uh, was great for at the time. You know, um, it really was. And maybe he would be, maybe he would be game to do it again. You know, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, I know. So we'll see. I mean, we will, you know, I'm on Facebook. I will let everybody know um, when we get a little more of this going. And uh, yeah, and let's hope so. I, I certainly would like to do it before I leave the planet. Well, don't leave anytime soon. No, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. So, so that, that's all going to be happening, man. And I personally can't wait to see what you're going to do with your, 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 a haunting. We will go. I mean, I oh, know yeah. you, it's you're coming gonna, out in October. You're going to deliver, man. It's good. Yeah. Be thank you, man. I'm excited. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, uh, so I really appreciate this, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing all these stories with me. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And I ask everybody this on the way out. And I may have asked you this before. But when you, when it is your time to leave this physical existence, and obviously there's no right or wrong answer, what will you or would you take with you? Mm. I, the combined knowledge of everything that I gleaned from the more positive things about being alive on this planet, there are glorious things here. And there's wonderful stories. And I look forward to a time, I hope, when as I get older now, I'm fallen victim to certain physical limitations. And my hope is that our consciousness continues on and we continue to learn. And we learn from the universe, from everything around us. 
And uh, to keep that consciousness in some way intact. And who knows? Maybe we come back. Maybe that happens. I don't know. But uh, it's been an amazing life. And so much has happened. And I, I hope that the next phase will be just as magical. I really do. And I don't know how many people on the other side may have seen Madman, but we'll find out. You know, <laughs> I'm sure plenty and counting. I mean, yeah, I mean, God's driving has got to be pretty spectacular. And the concession stand is amazing, I hear. Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining the conversation tonight. There's an incredible difference between real life and many of our movie monsters. However, in other cases, the line is quite thin, and the nightmare is identical to what's walking amongst us. Be careful out there, as you never know what waits in the shadows. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight. <laughs>